Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Happy Father's Day. Today, uh, my message is going to focus on fatherhood, which is actually a message which applies to all of us. Some of you, in fact, many of you, are fathers right now, or some of you may be fathers someday. But I, I can say one thing with 100% certainty, and that is that all of you have or at one time had a father. <laughs> so we all have something to gain from knowing what is the biblical call to fatherhood. And in fact, all of this today I'm going to talk about points really to our common father in heaven. So if you're a dad or soon-to-be dad or you had a dad, you guys awake today? This sermon is for you. And we're going to look at fatherhood this morning in sort of an unlikely character, sort of a character study of a guy named Jesse from Bethlehem, where we're going to look at this fatherhood of humans, human fatherhood, in the character story of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is the father of the second king of the Jews named David. So three points today about Jesse. Well, two about Jesse, one about God. The first point is, how is Jesse a pretty good dad? How is he a pretty good dad, point one. Secondly, how is Jesse a pretty kind of a bad dad? And then finally, how does all of that, how does all fatherhood point to our perfect father in heaven? That's point three. So point one is, how is Jesse pretty good? Point two is, how is Jesse pretty bad? And then finally, how does all of it point to our Father in heaven. So, before we dive into Jesse and his, his fatherhood, let me paint just a 30-second background of where we are in salvation history. We are in second, sorry, 1 Samuel, and we pick up where we left off last week. If you remember, if you were here, the people of Israel came to Samuel and said, give us a king like everybody else. And Samuel said, that's not such a good idea. And they said, we want to be like everyone else. And so Samuel gave them a king, the first king of the Jews, and his name was Saul. And he was a perfect candidate from outward appearance. He's tall, charismatic, strong. His name, Saul, if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, the name Saul actually means great one. So not only is he a stud, is he a Kennedy, is he a blue blood, he is, his name means great one. And so Saul, the important thing to see in that is that Saul, from a worldly perspective, Saul is like, he's the guy you want, he's the man. But we know that his kingship, just like God said, was a train wreck. And so God rejects him. Saul's dangerous. He's, a, he's no good as a king and God rejects Saul and says, all right, Samuel, 
who's the prophet who picks the kings for God. God rejects Saul, the king, and says, all right, Sammy, Samuel, boy, let's try this again. <laughs> and so that's where we are right now. Samuel has been gone to find a replacement for King Saul. And so God says, Samuel, I want you to go, and I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to find a dude named Jesse. And one of his sons will be the next king of the Jews. And so we're going to dial in. We're not going to talk about David. Get to him later. We're going to talk about Jesse, David's father. And the first point is, how is Jesse a pretty good dad? Well, um, the first thing I want you to see here is Jesse actually leads his boys in faith. He's only got boys, no daughters. He raises his children. We don't know much about him. We don't hear much about Jesse, but we do know one thing is that he raises his children in faith. He raises them to fear God. How do I know this? Well, the book tells us that when, when Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and knocks on the door, says, hey, Jesse, I got some good news for you. Oh, what's that? One of your boys is going to be the new king. What does Samuel do? He says, boys, saddle up. We are going to go with the prophet, and we are going to, listen, we are going to worship God. Notice, the first thing Jesse does when the prophet arises, when Samuel shows up to tell them about this new king, the first thing, the first thing Jesse does is he leads his boys in worship. Let's stop there. Dads, you and I'm one too. We have a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility and, frankly, a tremendous privilege to lead our children or grandchildren in worship. We have a responsibility and privilege to be the spiritual heads of our family. Now, I don't know why people hear that, that men are called to be the spiritual heads and they kind of get cringy. I'm not sure why that is. I've got a couple of working theories. But here's one thing I will point out to you that I think has something to do with it. When did religion become mom work? <laughs> it wasn't always, historically speaking, Jesse is the emblem and, the, and the, the paragon of human fatherhood. When did we lose that? When did religion become mom work? Well, I don't know for sure, but I have a hunch, and it's this. Maybe the change came because the past 110 years or so, the church has focused on Something you know and I know as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Picture Jesus in your mind. Just close your eyes for, what do you get, right? What do you picture? You picture Jesus, right? Is he big? No, he's probably pretty scrawny. He's got long, flowy hair. He's got a white dress, rosy cheeks. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We get, we get a girly Jesus. I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know why that is. I've got a hunch. It's probably the Victorians, something to do with it. But we get this Jesus with long flowy hair and a long dress, and he's a, he's a hoax. He's a fraud. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The girly Jesus is a fraud. Listen, Jesus Christ, we don't know much about what he did for a living before his ministry, but we do know this. 
He was a tectone. It's a Greek word. We usually translate that as carpenter, but we don't really know. A tecton is somebody who works with their tactile hand. And Jesus could have been a carpenter. He could have been a bricklayer. He could have been a, a, a rock cutter. He could have been a, a steel welder. If they had steel, which they didn't have that yet. The point is, the, P, the point is, Jesus was a carpenter. He was, he was a man's man. And not only that, he hung, out with, he hung out with fishermen. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe your mileage varies, but no bricklayer or construction worker or uh, iron worker or clam digger. <laughs> anybody know? Anybody, anybody from Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, the clam diggers up there? They are the most unruly, un sophisticated uh, bunch you'll ever run across. They're, but the point I want you to see here is that Jesus' is construction where hangs out with fishermen. They're a colorful lot. And I'm just going to make the obvious point here. That no professional fisherman or clam digger or construction worker that I've ever met would hang out with, follow, and even die for a girly Jesus. Which means which means this, that Jesus was tough. Jesus was a man's man. I mean, for crying out loud, the guy goes into the temple, knocks over the tables, chases out the money changers. He's nailed to a cross, friends. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, doesn't make anybody angry. But Jesus was a man's man. He was tough. He was no shrinking violet. And I wonder We've lost that image, which is true and historical and real. And we've traded it for this girly, long-dressed, flowy hair thing. I wonder if that's the reason why men look at Christianity now and go, eh, I don't know. I wonder. But the point I want you to see here is that if you think that religion is mom's work, it's not. Guys, if you want your child to have strong faith, it's up to you as the head of that family. I'm going to prove it. There was a study done about 10 years ago. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. There was a study done by a group called the Barna Group, and they do research in churches and stuff. And they looked at church attendance of people when they grew up and went to college or left the nest. And when they looked, it was fascinating. They found something. They found that kids that went to church only with mom, right, were later on in life indistinguishable from kids that never went at all. In other words, when kids, were, when kids only went with their mother growing up to church, when dad stayed home or dad was playing golf or whatever, those kids later on in life were no different statistically from children who never went to church at all. But the interesting thing they found was that kids whose father went to church with or without mom, that's the fascinating part, where dad was actively involved in the life of their kids' spiritual growth, who took their headship seriously, those kids grew up to be statistically far more likely to go to church than groups with no church background or just mom. And here's my point. Here's my point. What the study concluded was fascinating. That the authors concluded that kids, boys and girls, listen, they value what their dads value. Kids, boys and girls, learn from dad what's important and what isn't. And so if you want to have your kids have strong faith, and if you're sitting in this room right now, I'll bet you do, 
If you want your kids to have strong faith, for God's sake, Dad, you've got to lead them. It's up to you. It's, the Lord is leaning on you to be bold and confident in your faith. You dads have got to have Jesus as your head, and you've got to lead your family to him. And I think that is why, in fact, that's the only reason why, Jesse seems to me to be a pretty good dad. Because he takes the spiritual headship of his family seriously. He leads his boys. Boys, we're going up, and we're going to worship God, and we're going to join the prophet and see what he has to say. That's point one. That what makes Jesse, or you or I, dads, a pretty good dad, is that we take our spiritual headship of our families seriously. That's point one. Point two, but Jesse like me and like you. He's not perfect. Back to the story. Samuel shows up and says, Jesse, I got some good news for you. God has chosen one of your boys to be the new king. I mean, imagine, right? It'd be like Publishers Clearinghouse showing up at your house and knocking on the door with the TV cameras, you know? Someone shows up and your, your, one of your boys is going to be the next king of the Jews. And so Jesse, this dad who's very proud of his boys, is very excited. And what does he do? Boys, come on out. I got some great news. All right, Pop, come on out. And he lines them up, lines up his boys. And he starts with the first one whose name is Eliab. And Eliab is the obvious choice. He's the firstborn son. And the Jews practiced primogeniture, meaning the firstborn son had the responsibilities for the whole family. So Eliab is the obvious choice. And secondly, Eliab is apparently strong and tall and charismatic because... God says, don't look at his appearance. But they bring up Eliab, and, and Samuel thinks he's the one. De Jesse thinks he's the one. Eliab thinks he's the one. And God says, no, Sam, try again. All right. Sorry, Jesse. Next, we come to uh, Shema. He comes along. Nope. Okay. Next. And he goes through all seven. Listen with me. All seven of the boys stand there, each one. Nope. 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 God says nope. God says nope. God says nope. Uh-oh. Uh Lord, what's going on here? Right? Can you imagine Samuel? Like, all right, man, what you, you brought me this far. What's the deal? And so, and so Samuel says to, Samuel says to Jesse, he says, Jesse, it's the obvious question. We've been through all seven of the boys. Are they all here? And listen to what he says. This is important. Jesse, we're coming up, blown, I'm coming up short here. Are all of your boys here? And Jesse says, well, there is one. There is one. He's the youngest. What's his name again? Uh, David, yeah. But he's out tending the sheep. That word, that, you, gotta, you wouldn't know this, but that word youngest in the Hebrew is the word for uh, runt. He's nothing. He's worthless. In fact, David is so, <laughs> David is so unimportant to his father that he's not even there. He's uh, tending the sheep. He's, he's uh, cutting the grass and cleaning the pool, to use a modern kind of illustration. The point is that that word for youngest is the runt. It's a, it's a degrading and derogatory term. And Jesse says, yeah, there's one more, but why would you want him? He's, he's a nobody. And yet, here's the hook I want you to see. And yet, that nobody, that runt, that weakling, that insignificant kid out feeding the sheep, he's the one that God chooses. David the runt will be king. We're going to talk about him for the next couple of weeks. And the point I want you to see here, this is, come back a minute. 
Jesse may be the spiritual head of his family, good for him, but he's got a fatal flaw, and it's this, that Jesse, Jesse doesn't know his boys. When I, when I was younger um, in seminary, uh, I, I, um, was in, I had a friend of mine, Father Don Gross, who was my spiritual director, a wonderful giant of a man. And I was, I was once referred to my daughter, Amy, who was like four, three or four at the time. I was having a conversation with, with Father Gross, and I referred to Amy as my daughter. And he looked at me, he was my spiritual director, he said, she's not your daughter. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, she's not your daughter, she's God's daughter. Listen to this. He said, he has just, God has just given her to you to raise on his behalf. (laughs) You know, our children are entrusted to us by God. Listen, think about that, moms and dads, that God has chosen you to raise his children in his place. Let that sink in. (laughs) Because the point I want you to see here is that as dads and moms, your job, your job, your God-given responsibility and charge is to know your kids. Not to project your own baggage onto them. Not to live your lives through them. Not to try to overcome all the failures you went through in high school. Not to live your life and burden them. No. Your job, dad and mom, is to know what God says here, to know their heart, which their, their core, their guts, who they are. Now, I've got three girls, three daughters, and they're all different. They're all similar too, but anybody who's got children, you know, they're not all the same. Even twins are different from each other. Our job is to see them as God sees them. Our job is to help our son, our daughter, to identify their God-given gifts and use them. St. Paul writes something fascinating later on in 1 Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes the following words. It's directed at dads. He says, fathers, this is chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, he says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, dads, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does that word provoke mean? It means, well, it means don't pick at them. Don't badger them. Don't hang on them all day long. Your job is not to provoke them. And it's interesting. He says if you provoke them, it will discourage them. That's not what I would, I would think that if I provoke my kids, it's going to make them angry. It's going to make them frustrated. It's going to make them resentful. It's not what he says. Paul says, if you badger, you provoke your children, you're constantly antagonistic. It discourages them. What does that mean? Well, what Paul's saying by the counter-argument is, dads, dads, encourage your kids. And I don't mean always tell them they're right. And I don't mean always tell them, way to go, Johnny. I'll never forget when I was in New Jersey, we were sitting on the beach, and there's this there's this kid making a sandcastle or something, and he's digging along, and the father was just so incredibly effusive. Good job, buddy. Way to go, buddy. That's the best. I'm like, dude, it's a sandcastle. Come on. Let's not overdo it here. That's not what I mean. What I mean is to, en- to, encourage, to encourage somebody. What does it mean? It means to give them courage. 
To encourage someone is to give them courage, to make them see the world differently than they do, to remind them that there's a bigger picture, to point them to the goal, to make them, to pull them out of the weeds and point them, hey man, you can do this. You can do this. This is how God made you. This is, this is, your, this is your it, man. Do it. Go for it. That's encouragement. That's what we call, dad, we are called to do. And here's the question. Do you, do you encourage your kids? Or do they, are they something which you live your life vicariously through? If you're doing that, stop. <laughs> encourage them. Find out what makes them tick. Find out how God developed, made them and encourage them to use those gifts. I will never forget a guy that I met. I never really thought about this until about 10 years ago when I was rector of Trinity Church in Red Bank, New Jersey. And I met a man whose name is Ted Beal. Ted Beal was the CEO of a company that he started. He was a wonderful man. And Mr. Beal, Ted Beal, had a wonderful gift of encouragement. I'd never met anybody like him before. Ted had this wonderful way of no matter what was going on, he could always scoop you up and point you in a Godward direction. He could always take where you were and encourage you for the fight. Go get him! He had a wonderful, wonderful innate gift of encouragement. And all I want to say, friends, encourage your kids. Give them courage. That's what the word means. Know them. So point one is that lead your family. Point two, know your kids. And then finally, point three, is that we are called to reflect our Father in heaven. You know, even the best dads, even the best fathers in the world, even the Ted Beals of the world, pale in comparison to our Father in heaven. See, Dad, let me, let me think of it like this. This is going to make you, knock you around a little bit, I think. Think of it like this. You, you are your dad's dads. You are your kid's dad. But you, they are also, they are also your brother and sister in Christ. I've got three daughters, Amy, Katie, and Grace. They are my daughters, but they are also my Sisters in Christ, and what that means, <laughs> it's fascinating, is that when I do a great job as a dad, when I knock it out of the park, when, I do a, when I'm an encourager, I reflect our Father's goodness. And when I blow it, and I make a mistake, and I do, <laughs> I also reflect our Father's goodness. You want to know why? Because I go to them as a brother in Christ, and I tell them I'm sorry. Or explain why I did something. See, our job is to not, but to reflect our Father's goodness to our children in our, when we're good and when we're not so good. I'll never forget a woman back in, in New Jersey. Her name wasn't Mary, but I'm going to call her Mary. And I'll never forget, she had a hard time referring to God as her father. It really bugged her. She, she couldn't bring herself to do it. She would call him, uh, you know, the, the creator God, whatever. And I said to her once, I'm like, Mayor, what's the deal? Like, why, why are you so hung up on God as your father? Maybe some of you are there. You get hung up on God as your father. So why do you, why does that bother you so much? And she said, you know, she said, because my bio dad, that's what she called him, he was a monster. He was abusive, he was distant, he was controlling. And I cannot relate to a God whom I would call Father for that reason. And I said to her, you know, I said, let me challenge you with something. And she said, what? I said, Mary, stop comparing God to your Father 
and start comparing your father to God. Because the fact that your father was a train wreck, the father, your dad's failures don't negate the need for God of your father. In fact, it proves it. Because your dad failed you, but our father in heaven will never fail us. So dads, be the spiritual heads of your family. And I want to say this too in closing. I, I've been in four different parishes in my parish life. And of all four, this is the one parish where the dads almost always bring their kids to church. So I want to commend you guys. But let me just say this as I wrap up. Dads, don't give up and don't give in. <laughs> Our culture mocks fatherhood and will continue to do so. All that, look at, watch TV. All human fathers are portrayed as some variant of Homer Simpson, right? This aloof, bumbling ding-dong. That's what the culture wants you to think of a father. In fact, recently I was watching an interview with somebody on TV who said that males, fathers really aren't even all that necessary anymore except to propagate the species. My God, don't fall into that trap. Our culture mocks fatherhood, but friends, it was never a time in our culture when we needed you more. Be strong. Be humble. Lead your family. Love your wife and your kids. Encourage them. And on this Father's Day, let me leave you with this. Guys, fathers, take a moment today and thank God for the privilege of being called to be a father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.